Well, good evening. Welcome back to Christianity Proper, uh, Proper Doctrine, Proper Life. This will be our second installment on the Crusades and Christian Confusion. Um, it's not really a series. It's just it's what's going on right now, and I do feel compelled to speak about it and try to draw some interest, not in the sense of the interest that has already been brought about with the crusade. It's very popular. There's a lot going on, but interest in thinking through it, interest in um, exercising some discernment and really seeing what is going on here. Is this a move of God? Is this, um, is this something else? Is it, is God working in it, but it's still something that has a lot of error in it? And um, I want to start with this, especially for those people who might just be tuning in to see what I'm talking about um, and not listen to the whole thing, uh, just checking this out to see what Caleb is doing, if he's, if he's trying to criticize the event, if he's trying to tear stuff down or anything of that nature. I know that those accusations are already floating about and can't stop that, but I want to start with this. And if you're watching this or listening to it later, and you're someone who says, Caleb, I don't like what you're doing. I don't support it. Uh, I do think that you're trying to criticize and you're, um, you're being divisive. Um, I can't change your mind on that, but I would ask you to, to consider this. Just consider this one thing. I'm going to start here and then, and, and then go, uh, go from there through the rest of this uh, conversation, this study. Uh, Rick Gage himself, um, and I, I think, this, this statistic or this quote, uh, you, you hear preachers use it from time to time because it is a pretty powerful statistic, but Rick Gage himself has shared this a couple of times throughout the event already that even Billy Graham said that um, he believes probably about 70% of church members or those who attend church are actually unregenerate. They're, they're not converted. And I forget the other pastor's name, but he says there's another pastor who says if he could, if he could just see half of the people that he had ministered to or half of his congregation in heaven, he would be uh, he would be happy. Others have said that uh, the church in America is one of the largest mission fields that there is because of the amount of unchurched people uh, that are there that are in church, going to church, saying that they're Christian, but they're deceived and they're unsaved. I think those statistics are very telling, and I would say that I agree with the statistics. They're probably right. There's a lot of unregenerate people that believe that they're saved that go to church. So, so here's what I want you to consider because what the reason that they're bringing that up is to say, we need to, we need to get our decisions. We need to get people here to the crusade. We need to get people down, people down here on the altar. We need to get people to make a decision because even most of the people that go to church aren't saved. So my question is this, what is the most common evangelistic method of our day and not just our day, but in, in most recent church history, I mean, if you go back 50, 60, 70, 80 years and even further, what's the most popular form of evangelism that has led these people who aren't saved but think that they are to church, to join the church and to be a part of the church family? The shorter way to ask that question is simply this. What's the most popular form of evangelism that has led people to think that they're saved and to join the church. Exactly what this crusade is doing, decisionism. Come to the altar, slip up your hand, say this prayer after me. You made a decision for Christ today, you're saved. You made a decision for the Lord today, you can know that you're going to heaven. 
And these people, it doesn't have to be a crusade. I'm just, that's literally the most popular form of evangelism. Uh, when I was growing up, there was many things that I attended that that was how I was kind of taught to witness to people. Do you know for sure where you go when you die? Well, let me show you a few Bible verses real quick. And uh, if you don't want to go to hell, say this prayer after me. Re repeat this prayer with me and you can know that you're saved. And that's the most popular form of evangelism. Do you know where you're going when you die? Would you like to know? Let me show you the Romans road. Let me go through a few scriptures with you. Do you want to make a decision for the Lord today? Do you want to give your life to Christ today so that you can know you're going to heaven? Okay, repeat this prayer after me. You can do that one-on-one. -on -one. That's how a lot of people are taught to witness one-on-one. -on -one. It can happen at a church service, just a regular church service. The altar call happens and, and the preacher says, if you're here today and you need to get saved, slip up your hand, every head bowed, every eye closed. Everything's being done in secret. I don't know why, but everything's being done in secret. Slip that hand up into the air. Nobody's looking at you. Slip that hand up into the, praise God, I see that hand. Thank you for raising your hand today. You made the best decision of your life. Or it could be more than that. Okay, you slip that hand up in the air. I'm going to ask you to repeat this prayer after me, or I'm going to ask you to come forward. But it's decisionism. So I agree with the problem. 70% of the church, there's a good chance that 70% of church folks are unsaved. Why is that? How in the world are all of these unsaved people becoming convinced that they're saved and then joining churches? It's because our evangelistic methods are in error. They're unbiblical, they're errant, and our evangelistic methods a lot of times give people false assurance and false hope. That's the problem. So I agree that the amount of unchurched folks in the church or the amount of unsaved folks in the church is a problem. And I would say that the problem is exactly what these men are doing up on the stage during this crusade, telling people that because they came forward, because they raised their hand, because they said a prayer, because they did this, that, or the other, that they're saved and they made the best decision of their life. Now, with that being said, I know. In fact, I was there at the crusade last night. I acknowledge this. I've heard it with my own ears. They tell people, you're, you're not saved just because you came down. You're not saved just because you raised your hand. They say that, but then what do they do? They lead these people in a prayer, and then they say, praise God for the work he's done. Praise God for the work that he's done. These folks just made the best decision of their life, and they do that after the prayer was prayed. So you tell me what the insinuation is. You, you can verbalize all you want. You're not saved because you came forward. You're not saved just because you say a prayer, blah, blah, blah. But then once the people say the prayer, there's a declaration made that these folks made the best decision of their life. Praise the Lord for the decisions that were made here tonight. These people just made sure that they knew that they were going where they, when they died. So what's the insinuation? You are saved because you came forward. You are saved because you, you repeated a prayer after them. That's the problem. So if you don't listen to anything else, I've only been talking for seven minutes. So I spit all that out in seven minutes. If you're just checking in to see what, what's Caleb saying now, what's going on here, uh, what is this? Or even if you're just curious and you say, well, what is he talking about? I've never listened to Christianity proper before. I've never watched one of his live videos. What is he talking about? If you don't, if you don't think or ponder on anything else, please ponder that. If it's a problem that many, many people who go to church, they're on the church roll, they are church members. If it's a problem that many church members probably aren't even saved themselves, then what led to that problem? 
And I would say that what led to that problem is poor evangelism and poor gospel presentations, giving people false hope, giving people false assurance so that what do they do? They think that they're saved, so they go and join the church as a Christian, quote unquote, Christian. So with that being said, I want to jump right in to this next statement. And I do want to make this as, as a statement. I want to say plainly, I want to say clearly that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I do not doubt it for a second, that many people who helped plan this event, many people who, uh, who got this together, many people who are up on the stage singing songs or, or sharing a testimony or even, even teaching, uh, whether, it, whether it's somebody who's actually up on the stage as the keynote speaker, I know that there are many that are sincere, they are genuine, they, they really do want to see souls saved, they really do want to see a mighty move of God, they want to see God work in Appling County and in surrounding areas. I don't doubt that for a second, and that is why I feel compelled to address these things. It's because I know that people are sincere. It's because I know that they're genuine. It's because when, when I was there last night and I looked out upon that sea of people, I know and I take it in good faith and I would say that I know many, many of those that were there, they are my brothers and sisters in Christ and they want to see God move or they want to see God work and they want to see souls saved. They want other people they truly want to know other people are coming to hear the true gospel and, and to be saved. They, they want that to be true. And so they've helped support this and they've, they've organized it and uh, they put it together. And, and their, their desire, I would say, is sincere. They, they don't want anything bad. They, they're not going after anything negative. They want God to move and they're using the most popular Americanized methodologies and events to do that. And so that's why I feel compelled to make the video because if, or to make this video in the podcast, if our desire to see souls saved, if our desire to see God move, to use the, to use the language that's being used at this event a lot, if our desire to see God move, if our desire to see souls saved, if our desire to see God glorified is detached from sound biblical teaching and sound biblical explanation, then there's going to be a problem. We talked about that in the last installment. That zeal for lost souls, that zeal to see God glorified, that zeal to see God move has to be anchored in a proper understanding of the gospel, a proper understanding of the rest of scripture. I'm not saying we have to perfectly understand all of scripture, but I am saying that has to be anchored in a proper uh, framework of the, the greater narrative of Scripture, all of Scripture. Or else we're going to start doing things that are unbiblical. We're going to start leaning upon worldly wisdom, worldly methods, worldly strategies, rather than leaning upon the power of God, the power of the gospel, trusting in the sovereign power of God to save, if we're not rooted and grounded in the word, then our faith is not going to be rooted and grounded in God and his word and his methods, strategies. Go with me on that one. I'm not, I'm not totally comfortable using that language either, but 
my, the point that I'm driving is God has a way that he has designed things to work, including evangelism, including outreach. There's a, there's a way that we could say what we're doing, we can say that, that we are using the scripture to build our framework of evangelism. We're, we're using the scriptures. We're not doing anything that, that we even have reasonable doubt would be going against scripture. We're not employing any methodologies that we didn't get from scripture. There's a way to do evangelism and to do outreach where we can say that confidently and say, hey, we're, we're using the examples that we've been given in scripture. We're following in the footsteps of Christ and his apostles and following in the footsteps of the early church. And that's what I would say is simply not happening. Um, and so that's why I feel the need to address these things because I want the body of Christ to go about, I want the body of Christ to go about their evangelism and to go about their soul winning in ways that are biblical and ways that are grounded in the truth. So my goal with these efforts, regardless of what people say, and I know that people are already talking, my goal with these efforts is actually for all of this to become more biblical, right? So if there's a crusade, whether it's a Rick Gage crusade or a, um, or a whatever crusade, put anybody's name on it. If there's a crusade for Christ, I want that to be the most biblical crusade that it can be. If there's a, a, a Scott Camp evangelistic outreach, I want that to be the most biblical outreach that it could be. So I'm not viewing this as if these people are not brethren, that they're just cast out of the kingdom. I'm viewing this as that sea of people that was there last night has many of my brothers and sisters in Christ and I want them to be strengthened and I want us to be edified. I want us to have joy in our salvation. I want us to have true unity, true joy, and I want God to truly be glorified. And here's the thing. Sound doctrine does all of that. Sound doctrine unifies the believers. The biblical unity that we read about in Scripture, um, the biblical unity that we read about is in sound doctrine. We are to be united in the in the one in the true faith that was once delivered to all the saints. We are to be united in sound doctrine. Sound doctrine leads to greater joy. Now, here's what I mean by that, because obviously Christ is our joy, but sound doctrine helps us to rightly understand Christ. Sound doctrine helps us to rightly comprehend what he truly accomplished with his finished work of redemption upon the cross. And the more that we rightly understand that, the more that we rightly properly understand Christ, the more our joy will increase. And it is only preaching and teaching of the sincere milk of the word, the sound doctrine of the word that truly glorifies God. Every preacher, everybody who stands anywhere and proclaims the gospel, we are called to preach the word. And we're actually called to keep the commandment unstained. It's to be the pure word, the true word. It's to be sound doctrine. And when it's not, we, we cannot say with any confidence that that glorifies God. In fact, we should be saying with confidence that does not glorify God. False doctrine does not glorify God. Worldly methodologies, worldly strategies, they do not glorify God without question. So that's why, that's the why 
I know we live in a world today that's a pretty popular phrase. You need to find your why. What is your why? That's my why. I want to see the body of Christ edified and unified under truth with the sound doctrine of Scripture. So with that being said, the rest of this installment, I, I want to utilize Scripture as much as possible because I don't want anybody to think, well, that's Caleb and that's how Caleb thinks. I want us to look at the Word. I want us to look and see what God has to say about some of these ideas and, and, and some of these concepts. No, there's nothing in Scripture that says this is how you shall do the altar call or anything like that, but you'll see what I'm saying. We're going to look to the Word. Uh, we're going to see what false teachers look like, what sound teachers look like. We're going to see that false teachers actually have signs and wonders, uh, that Jesus himself said that false teachers will have signs and wonders. Um, so that's nothing to say, oh, well, that guy did a miracle or there was something crazy that happened in his, uh, in his ministry. He must really be of God. No, false teachers will have signs and wonders. We'll look at that. But Ephesians chapter four, I love this passage of scripture. I use it often, um, but we'll pick it up in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So what is unity connected to? Unity is connected to the true faith and the knowledge of Christ. That's what brings about unity. This nonsense, and that's what it is, it is nonsense, it is foolishness. This nonsense about we just need to forget our differences. We just need to forget that that some people say, um, you need to be, you need to receive a second baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, and some people don't. We need to forget the fact that that uh, some folks are okay with female pastors and and other ones aren't. We need to just forget about the fact that that some say you can speak in tongues as much as you want. Some say you don't need to speak in tongues, and some say, well, as long as it is two or three, we just need to throw all of that out the window. We need to forget about all of that, and we just need to be united. That's not unity. That's chaos. That is, that is division. That is false unity because we're pretending that we're coming together, but we're not. We're not because we're coming together for souls to be saved. And let's just say that all those souls that are saved, just going with the example, let's just say that any soul that truly is saved, they, start, they all go to different churches. Well, when they all go to different churches, they're all going to be learning something totally different because of all the doctrinal differences that are out there. Is that so? That's not unity. If we just if we just think it through a little bit, we'll realize this this nonsense about we just need to push all of those differences to the side and just come together and be united. We're not now. Some of those differences, some differences, yes, you can do that with. Well, I wear a suit and tie to church, but they wear a t-shirt to church. That's a difference that you can throw it out the window. But the differences of how we understand baptism of the Holy Spirit, the differences of how we understand what constitutes a pastor, the differences of, of what is a pastor, the differences of, you know, what is, what's the biblical stance on homosexuality, the differences of what is the gospel, what is salvation, what does salvation actually look like, differences on those types of doctrine and those types of understanding and teaching, those things matter. So when we pretend that they don't matter and we just push them to the side and say, oh, we're coming together for the sake of unity, it's not unity, it's, it's, it's deception. We're deceiving ourselves into thinking we're united 
but really it's just chaotic. It's just chaos. It doesn't work. True unity, biblical unity, is unity around the truth. So see, the issue is, if we've got differences on baptism of the Holy Spirit, differences on what is a pastor, differences on what is the gospel, what is salvation, what we, if we really want to be united, we need to come together and we need to lay it all out on the table and say, okay, what's all the stances here? What are all the different doctrines? We need to study it out in the Word of God and we need to get to the bottom of it. Because we ought to love the body of Christ too much to pretend that this stuff doesn't matter. We ought to say, let's all stop pretending and let's get to the bottom of it. If you love God, like you say that you love God, if I love God, like I say that I love God, then we should want to be walking in the light as he is in the light. And we should want to worship him rightly. We should want to preach and teach the word rightly, properly. And so we need to actually study these things out to see what God has actually spoken and where we're wrong. We need to repent. We need to repent of what we're doing that is not biblical, that is not right, that is not proper, that is not sound. That's how these things ought to be handled, but they're not. Here's how they're handled. I know that there's differences, but listen, all I'm asking you to do is just forget about those differences and come together on the gospel. Just come together on the gospel. Well, here's the thing. The gospel is not disconnected from every other biblical doctrine that there is. So we need to stop pretending. Sound doctrine leads to true unity. Unity is connected to a right understanding of the faith, which is all of the faith, and a right understanding of Christ. In the book of Jude, he says that it's the faith that was once delivered to all the saints. Different saints don't get different faiths. Different saints don't get different gospels. Different saints don't get different doctrines. All true believers should be striving to walk in unity. And it's not just a unity that says, hey, do you believe that people have to believe that Jesus was born, buried, or born, crucified, buried, and risen again? Like, do we have unity on that? Okay, we do. Well, then we can be united. No. No. True unity involves everything. You, could, you can make a good case that the gospel is really all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. That's the full gospel. So we need to have an understanding on that. So I wanted to read that from Ephesians 4 um, to get us started there. For those of you who say, well, I'm still, I'm still kind of iffy on this. Caleb, I feel, like, I feel like you're being divisive. I feel like you're being critical. I feel like people who do the stuff that you're doing and say, hey, this really isn't right. And I don't know how I feel about this. I feel like everybody who does stuff like that has a critical spirit. I would ask you to consider this. Most of what we have in the New Testament is made up of letters that are written to churches that are being corrected. And Paul is saying, hey, you're, you know, well, I say Paul because he wrote most of it, but Paul is saying, you know, this is wrong in the church. You need to correct it. This does not glorify God. You need to turn from that and you need to address it. You need to fix it. You need to repent. You need to ask for forgiveness. Uh, this situation needs to be addressed. In Philippians, he says, hey, these two people right here, they're not getting along. You need, you need to inquire of them and plead with them to get along in the Lord. Let there be peace in the house of God. He calls people out by name. When we read through the New Testament, when we read these New Testament letters, do we sit there and say, you know what? There's a spirit of criticism here. This is, you know, I just feel like a Pharisee wrote this New Testament. 
a Pharisee wrote the New Testament because he's telling people that they're doing stuff wrong. And I mean, I just, I don't like that. I don't, I don't think we need to tell people that they're doing stuff wrong and they don't need to be corrected. They just need to be loved, right? I mean, that, is that how we read the New Testament? No. In fact, we probably read the New Testament, at least we ought to, and say, wow, he is correcting them. And there's power in his correction. There's authority in that correction. Just like, well, that makes sense because there's power in the word of God. There's authority in the word of God. And 2 Timothy 3, um, 15 through 17, we see that the word of God, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for instruction, for correction, right? For teaching, for correction, doctrine, instruction, and righteousness. God gave us his word so that we could make corrections where we were in error, right? So again, I'll just say this once more. That's what I'm looking at. When I see this crusade, again, I'll, there's many people that are sincere, they're genuine. They want to see a true move of God. They want to see souls saved, right? But the way that we're going about it, the methods that are employed on the stage, the manipulation, the begging people to come forward, that is error. That's not biblical. You cannot ground any of that in Scripture. Giving away free prizes, giving away thousands of dollars worth of stuff, giving away a free car just to get people, just to lure people in, you, you can't. You, you can't justify that from Scripture. And, and there again, that, that desire, well, we just want to see as many people come to hear the gospel as possible. Wonderful, me too. But we're going to trust the power of God to bring them in. We're going to trust the goodness of God to, to bring them to the place where they hear the gospel. We're going to invite them and we're going to trust God to bring the increase. We're, we're going to plead with them. We're going to pray for them. We're going to say, hey, but, but you see, here's the thing, even with that, and, and now this is, I'm, I'm, I'm already kind of getting away, so, but I do want to make this point, and then I'll come back to my notes because I did write all this out to try to stay a little bit more focused. Even that, this idea of we're going to go out, we're going to door knock, we're going to go out into the communities and invite people to the crusade. Well, why not? Why not? Why not share the gospel with them right there, like where you're at? And I'm not saying nobody did that. So if you're watching this, you say, Caleb, we did. The wonderful. What I'm saying is that's like, that's real evangelism. Like talk to somebody at the gas station, walk up to somebody's house and say, you know what? I really, I felt like I needed to knock on your door today. I just, I just want to show you, I, I want to share the good news of Jesus Christ with you today. Um, you know, that's evangelism, sharing the gospel wherever you're at. Like you do it evangelism isn't, hey, come to this event with me. Hey, we're, we're giving away free stuff. Don't you want, you, you, if you come to this event to hear the gospel, you're going to get something out of it. Like that's not evangelism, right? Evangelism is literally sharing the good news. Share it, okay? You look at Jesus and the, and, and the disciples, they never, you, and here, I'll play devil's advocate. Well, yeah, but they healed people and Jesus fed some people, right, okay? So he healed people. First off, we don't have that authority regardless of what Scott Kemp said last night at the crusade. We don't have that authority to walk around healing people, casting demons out. Jesus did that. He gave the 70 disciples uh, the power to do that. And then, and then the 12 had, the apostles had uh, a peculiar power upon them. Yes, but was the were they using that just to get people to, to pay attention to him? No, he, he used that to show his authority to say, I really am the son of God. You need to repent and believe in me. You need to follow me. So it was always a, the power to save 
is in the proclamation of who Christ is. And I know that all these, they would say, well, that's what we're saying. We believe that. We, we say that. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Then why do you need all this other stuff? Why are you using all this other stuff? Well, because we're using that to get them here to hear about Jesus. Right, but there again, what methods are we using once they're here? What are we actually teaching and preaching once they're here? I'm not going to get into all of it tonight. I'm going to get into some of it tonight. But when I was there last night, what was preached on that stage was completely, utterly false doctrine. From start to finish. From start to finish, it was false doctrine. And they're, hallelujah, amen, glory. There was people celebrating it. So we're, well, we're just using this to get them to come hear the gospel. What gospel? That, that's the issue, right? So most of the New Testament letters are include correction. Even you could use the gospels. There was times that Jesus had to look at the disciples and say, do you still not understand? Oh, you of little faith. Well, that's a, that's a form of correction. That's a form of exhortation and, and kind of like reprimand. Like, come on, you're still not getting it, right? We've got to get away from this idea that, that people who say, hey, let's think about this. Hey, let's go to the Bible. Hey, this isn't right. We've got to get away from the, people, from the idea that we just immediately say that people like that are critical. People like that are Pharisees. People like that, they have a religious spirit. No, they don't. They have a biblical spirit, right? I mean, that... Hey, body of Christ, let's study the word to see if we're really glorifying God. You tell me how that's a religious spirit when you really think about it. Hey, brothers and sisters in Christ, let's study the word of God to see if what we're actually doing truly glorifies God. I would say that if anybody thinks that that's a religious spirit or if anybody thinks that's, a, that's the spirit of a Pharisee, then... They're just dead wrong. They're dead wrong because we're actually encouraged to do that. Test the spirits to see whether or not they are of God. We're to rightly divide the word of truth, right? Like that's what's in here. Those are the passages that we're ignoring in all of this. So most of the New Testament letters included correction. Um, do we read the New Testament and say that was Pharisaical or do we say, oh, wow, this it glorifies God for error to be corrected within the body of Christ. Of course it does. Of course it glorifies God to correct error, to take those weak parts and make them stronger. Iron sharpens iron, right? And when iron sharpens iron, sparks are going to fly. Emotions might get tense. But the end result is a body of Christ, a body of believers that is sharper, that is more edified, and that, like Paul says in Ephesians 4, that is equipped for the work of the ministry. Now, um, what's the emphasis on? I know y'all, uh, if you if you watched the last one or, or listened to the last podcast, uh, I believe I pointed that out a good bit. What's the emphasis on? What are we hearing? And so that's another question that I would pose to you. If you've been following this crusade, if you've really been tracking it, keeping up with it, what's the emphasis on? When they give an update about the crusade, when they, when they give an announcement about the crusade, when they give information about the crusade, what's it on? What's the emphasis on? Get people there. It's going to be exciting. Here's how many decisions that have already been made. In 1998, we were here and we, 
There was over 8,000 people who came out to this crusade and over 800 decisions for the Lord were made in 1998. So obviously the goal would be, well, we need to break that record. We need to get over 800 decisions, 900, 1,000, 1,200 decisions, right? Um, so far already, they had a night where three, 300 decisions were made. First night, Sunday night at the event, 116 decisions were made. This morning, there was an announcement, already over 400 decisions for the Lord. So what's the emphasis on? Numbers, the size of it, excitement. Numbers, numbers, numbers. Got to pump it up. Bring more of your friends with you. Bring more of your family members with you. Numbers, numbers, numbers. And even, well, I'm glad I wrote these down. This is gonna, this is gonna help keep me on. <laughs> um, what is the emphasis on when they preach? If you've been to the events, or if you've watched any of the clips online, or anything like that, really ask yourself and be honest. <laughs> That's funny because he says that a lot. Um, be, be honest, be sincere and, and really ask yourself, do I hear more preaching from the word or do I hear more personal testimonies? Do I hear more scripture or do I hear more emotional stories that pull at my heartstrings? Do I hear more scripture or do I hear more numbers? When they're telling these testimonies, if, if you've picked up on it, a lot of times they say, well, we've seen over half a million people make decisions for the Lord in our ministry. We've seen over, we've seen over a thousand people come in, in, in one event. We've, we've seen this many numbers. You know, God just, God just moves, and that's what we want to see here in Appling. What's the emphasis on? Is the emphasis on Christ and Him crucified, or is the emphasis on the event? This event is powerful. We're glad you've decided to be here tonight. We're looking for a great move of God. We're, we're looking for many decisions for the Lord. What's the emphasis on? Is it on Christ or is it on the event? Is it on Christ or is it on their own ministry? Is it on Christ or is it on the altar call? Is it on you, the listener, the audience? Is it on us? You've got a decision you need to make. You probably need to come forward tonight. If you've got something you need to get right, you should come forward. What's the emphasis on? Are they encouraging us to look to Christ or are they encouraging us to look at ourselves? Are they encouraging us to look at Christ or are they encouraging us to look at them? Because mostly what I've heard so far, and I will acknowledge this just in case anybody brings this up and say, well, he wasn't totally honest. He didn't cover everything. I acknowledge, I will say this plainly, in every, in every sermon or speech that I've heard them give, yes, there is a, there's these brief pockets where they actually bring up the true gospel, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for sin, that he was buried, that he was risen the third day, he ascended, he's at the right hand of the Father, and he's coming back in glory. But that is by far and away, by far and away, the most minimal portion of their sermons or their speeches. Everything else is testimony after testimony after testimony. I know this one kid who died in a car wreck, he's probably in hell today. Do you want to go to hell? That's not the gospel. I know this one guy, he gave his life to the Lord and God, God has used that person to lead so many souls to Christ and God has used this person's ministry. God changed that person's life. That's not the gospel. Where's the gospel? There are these brief pockets where they bring up the gospel but then they just speed right by it. 
Then when it comes to the altar call, there's a lot of emphasis on the altar call. <laughs> a lot of emphasis because that's what all of this is about. We need to get these numbers. We need to count heads, see how many decisions are being made so that we can see how successful the crusade was. I mentioned that in the last podcast, so I'm not going through all that again. But I'm going to use the, I will use the word again, tactics. There's a lot of tactics that are used in these altar calls. Something I've noticed, because I have, I've, I've gone and watched some of the, the YouTube videos, and like I said, I was there last night in person. Um, I've seen other clips. I watched the sermon, uh, Baxley Church of God, Sunday morning, where Rick Gage was there. It's troubling to me, and this is something that if you say, well, that doesn't really trouble me, that doesn't really bother me, then that's fine. I'm, I'm, li I'm literally saying this is Caleb, this, but this does bother me. The altar calls are always the same. Now, to me, that's a dead giveaway that all of this is part of a plan. It's part of a scheme. We've got a plan. We've got a game plan, and we're executing that game plan. We have a, we have a strategy, and we're working that strategy. There's a method here. There's a methodology, and we've got to step one, step two, step three, step four, step five, and then boom, we're going to get them with the big finish. That troubles me because I see stuff like that, and I think that's a dead giveaway. They're not trusting in the power of God. They are literally putting all of their trust in their format, their plan, their tactics. They're putting all of their faith in the game plan. We got to go through these steps and that's how we get them because the gospel is not enough. But if we ask them all these questions and if we tell them to raise their hand and then tell them to come forward, we're going to get, we're going to get a big turnout. You say, Caleb, how, how do you come to that conclusion? When it's the same, whether it's in Tennessee or Texas or Georgia, or Mississippi, if it's the same, that lets me know, okay, they have a method. Like they do this everywhere that they go. It's consistent. It's the same thing everywhere they go. That's what, and that they trust that. They trust that method to get the results. That's troubling. Even, even the way uh, in the opening prayer, almost, almost every clip I've seen He'll pray the same thing in his opening prayer. Well, that, that leads me to believe he's not even really praying. That prayer is a part of his method. That prayer is just a part of a scheme, a strategy that he's memorized. And so he's, he's going through the bullet points. Point A, point B, point C, point D. Okay, I'm reaching the finish line. I'm going. If you listen to the prayers, you know, Lord, unctionize me. Give me the words to speak. Use me. And it's always the same thing wherever he goes. You say, Caleb, you're being too critical. On that part, I say, hey, maybe I am. Maybe I am judging that. Maybe he really does mean it. But to me, yes, if I'm being honest, it's very troubling to me that even his prayers are the same wherever he goes. That's odd. You come to the altar call, though, and this is the same. Raise your hand. If you, if you know that you're saved, raise your hand. But he doesn't stop there. Raise your hand. If you know that you're saved and you really mean it, you, you, you have a walk with Christ, you have a devotional life, you have a prayer life, uh, you're really living for the Lord, there's nothing fake about you, there's nothing phony about you, there's nothing hypocritical about you, you, you don't just say that you're a Christian, you're really walking the walk, you're a, you're a witness for Christ, you're telling others about Jesus, and then where it gets really, really crazy for me is when he says, when he says, Though, Rick, you would say to me, Rick, those who know me best, they admire me. 
because they know I love the Lord. They admire me for my walk with Christ. Well, here's the thing. Anybody with a shred of humility, even if, even if you were to start up with your, yeah, I know that I'm saved. You have a prayer life. You have a devotional life. There's nothing fake about you. There's nothing phony about you. Well, I'm, I mean, yeah, there's, there's stuff that I try to hide from other people. There's stuff that I'm struggling with. So I, I guess, does that make me a fake? Does that make me a phony? The people who know you best, they say that they admire you. They admire you for your walk with Christ. Well, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that people admire me because I'm such a great Christian. That's not, that's not something I would say that, that people admire. Well, so now my hand's down. Then he follows that up with, if you're here today and you couldn't raise your hand, well, my hand, I, I had it raised, but then I can't. Well, if you're here today and you can't raise your hand and you, you don't know where you'd go when you died, you don't know, if you died in a car wreck, if you found out you had cancer, you don't know where you would go. And you say, Brother Rick, I want to make sure my name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life tonight, which, by the way, full stop, those who are saved, our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. You can fact check me on that. Look it up. I'll give you a hint. It's in the book of Revelation. Our names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. So that's a doctrinal problem. When he says, come forward to make sure your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life tonight, no, that's not how it works. But back to the altar call. If you couldn't raise your hand, you need to get saved. But then he says, if you're here today and you say, I couldn't raise my hand because there's areas of my life that I need to get straight with God. I need to get right with God. There's areas of my life that I know I'm sinning. There's areas of my life that I know aren't right. And, and then he, I've noticed that this is, Brother Rick, pray for me. Or all of them. It's not, it's not just Rick. It's, it's all of the speakers. When I was there last night, Scott Camp, he did the same thing. You say, brother, pray for me. I need prayer. Pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for me. Well, here's the thing about that. I would even say that that's a tactic because if I'm sitting in that crowd and I'm thinking to myself, well, I probably need to go up, but I don't want to raise my hand or I probably need to raise my hand, but I don't want to raise my hand because I don't want people to, I don't want people around me to know that I'm not really saved. I don't want people around me to know that I'm not living right. And you say, well, if they're thinking that, they're focused on the wrong things anyway. I agree with you. They are focused on the wrong things anyway. But if I'm somebody that my goal is to get as many people to come forward as possible, I'm going to take that into consideration. And I'm going to say, okay, how does the mind work? There's going to be some people that feel like they should raise their hand, but they don't want to because they don't want the people around them to know. So how can I ease that? How can I soften that edge? If you say, you want me to pray for you to not raise your hand. Oh, I mean, if he's just, if he's just saying, raise your hand if you need prayer. Yeah, I need prayer. Pray for me, Brother Rick. Pray for me, Brother Scott. Pray for me. He, he's making it a whole lot easier to find a reason to raise your hand. He's grooming the crowd. He's, he's grooming you to the answer that he wants you to give. He's, he's molding you and shaping you to do what he's really, what he's really hoping that you do, and that's raise your hand. Because once he gets everybody to raise their hand, he says, if you just raise your hand, you look at me, look up here, make eye contact with me, look at me, look at me, look, look up here. I'm going to ask you to do something. If you raise your hand, you don't need to be ashamed of Christ. You don't need to be ashamed of your decision today. If you raise your hand, I want you to get up out of your seat and I want you to come forward. Well, now let's backtrack. Let's think about everything. He asked, if you know that you're saved, raise your hand. 
Then if you don't know that you're saved, raise your hand. If there's an area of your life that you need to get, if there's any area whatsoever in your life that you need to get straightened out with God, raise your hand. If you need prayer for anything, raise your, I mean, so, so who shouldn't have raised their hand at that point? You, do you see? If you ask that many questions to get people to raise their hand, the chances are eventually somebody's going to raise their hand for something. And then you say, if you raised your hand, come forward. Who's not coming forward? Right? You just ask a thousand questions to get everybody to raise their hand. Now come forward. Okay, well, I raised my hand. He's telling me to come forward. So I guess I need to go forward. Then once we're there at the front of the altar, now we can count heads and every, and here, and let me, now I'm to the point that I want to interject this. I know there's sincere people that are a part of this. I know that they're genuine. I know that there's sincere people, there's genuine people who are a part of the counseling. And at this point, people have already said, yeah, but Caleb, there's some good that's coming out of it. So, so isn't that enough? The fact that there's some good that's coming out. I mean, Caleb, don't you think that people could actually get saved at an event like this? And I'll, and I'll answer that question right here. Yeah. I do think that somebody by the grace of God could actually get saved as a result of an event like this. But it's only by God's grace and it's in spite of what's being taught and what's being proclaimed. Uh, most of what's being proclaimed on that stage. It's in spite of that purely by the grace of God, like all salvations, purely by the grace of God. So just because there's some good fruit coming out of it is not a reason for us to excuse the fact that it's, it's in error and that there's a lot that is clearly, unquestionably unbiblical. We can't look at some, something that is clearly unbiblical, clearly not grounded in the truth of scripture and say, well, there's some good coming from it, so we'll just let it be. No, no. Again, scripturally, read through the New Testament, which is read through all of scripture, but read through the New Testament. If you say, well, we're, we're in the church age, so I'm gonna focus on the church. Okay, just focus on the church age. Read through the New Testament. Did Jesus or the, uh, or the disciples, did any of them um, use that method? Well, it's, there's a lot of error but there was a little bit of good that came out of it, so we're just going to let it slide. No. <laughs> no doubt about it. No doubt about it. When there was error, that error got addressed. Where there were false teachers, those false teachers got called out. Read First and Second Timothy and Titus. Paul straight up tells Timothy and Titus, address the false teachers, call out the false teachers, correct the false doctrine. It's plain. Again, Paul called out Peter in front of a large crowd. Peter wasn't even preaching a false gospel. He was living a false gospel because he got up from this one group of people and he went over here because he feared man. And Paul called him out in front of the whole crowd for exemplifying a false gospel. That's the biblical examples that we have. So we've got to understand it's not, uh, Vodibachum has a thing he likes to say that the 11th commandment is thou shalt be nice. And forget the other 10. It is the most nice thing that you can do. It is the most loving thing that we can do to look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, the body is sick. There's things that need to be addressed. 
There's false doctrine within the body that, that's tearing the body down and it's harming the body. That's not not nice. That's actually the most nice and the most loving thing that we can do. What's not loving is to, is to pretend like there's not a problem. What's not loving is if you go to the doctor and your body is riddled with cancer and your doctor refuses to show you the results and says, you know what? You're fine. There's some, uh, there, there's some good news. You're going to be able to just continue your life as normal. Did that doctor do the loving thing? Did that, did, did that doctor do the right thing? No. The doctor needs to say, here's the problem. You've got cancer. Here's how we're going to try to treat it. Here's how we're going to try to, to lead you to a place where your health is restored. So for us, for us as believers to ignore the sickness and say, well, there's some good coming out of it and ignore the fact that false doctrine rots the body. Again, read scripture, 1 Timothy, Titus, false doctrine unsettles the faith of true believers. Scripture literally tells, and we're going to get to a lot of scripture in just a moment. False teachers literally prey on the weak and the unsettled in their faith. So when we look at something that is clearly false and pretend that it's not a problem just because a little bit of good seems to be coming from it, we're just as guilty as the false teachers because we're not saying anything. And we're also guilty of hating our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we had a family member who was dying, you know, we, we've all heard this very simple analogy. I'm going to change it. to If you see somebody running off a cliff, I'm going to change it to a family member. If we see a family member who's about to walk off a cliff or run off a cliff, is it hateful to reach out to them and say, hey, stop what you're doing. You're about to die. You're about to hurt yourself. If we've got a family member who is dying, do we? is it hateful to tell them the truth and say, hey, you're sick. We need to get this taken care of. No, it's loving. You care about that person. It, it is not Christ-like to try to find something good in something that's rotten. It's Christ-like to acknowledge that something is rotten, but it can be redeemed. That something is not pure, but it can be purified. It's, it's Christ-like to acknowledge that something is immature, but it can be matured. And that's how we ought to view the body of Christ. Where we're, where we're kind of unsanctified, God... The word, Christ, sanctifies us. Where we, where we need to be purified, the word purifies us. Where we need to grow up and become more mature, the word matures us. But this whole business about, well, yeah, there's a lot wrong with it, but there's some good that's coming from it. Okay, let's address what's wrong so that we can make it even more God-glorifying, so that we can make it even more biblical, so that we can make it even better. I'm not saying that nobody needs to have crusades anymore. I'm not saying that we don't need to have these big events. Saying that let's... Um, let's make it more biblically accurate. Let's make it more sound. Let's make it more God glorifying. Let's ground it and root it in the sound doctrine of scripture. Um, I noticed as well that, uh, at the end of the altar call last night, something was said. He, he told the people that had just made decisions. He said, look, this is just the beginning. It doesn't end here. This is just the beginning. God's going to give you power to be a witness and I was like, okay, well, okay, accurate. Um, but then he says he's going to give you he's going to give you power to be a witness to your friends at school tomorrow, your lost friends, your lost family members. 
And he's going to give you power to witness to them so that they'll come back here tomorrow night and Wednesday night and we'll see an even greater move of God. And I was like, there it is again. It all comes back to the crusade. It all comes back to this event. It's all about the event. All about the event. Briefly, I'm just going to hit some highlights. I'm not going to do a sermon breakdown. We've already been going for 50 minutes. In the sermon last night, the reason that I said that it was just utter false doctrine from start to finish. In his opening prayer, he said, we know, we know that Jesus didn't just shed his blood for our souls, but for our physical healing. Well, that has, that has long been considered a heresy because it is a heresy. It's a false teaching. It's a false doctrine that Christians don't need to accept any type of physical illness or any type of physical malady. Because when Jesus died on the cross, he purchased our physical healing as well. That's, you might as well pull out the white bread and make a sandwich because that's baloney, right? That's how it started. You can read Isaiah 53 and second, and, and they'll quote those verses, but read those verses in context in Isaiah 53. When it says, by his stripes we are healed, what did Jesus accomplish through, his, through the Passion Week and through the crucifixion? What did he accomplish? The atonement for our sin. We are healed of our sins. We are healed of our spiritual maladies. We are healed from the, the sinful disease that, that left us dead in our trespasses and sin. We're healed from that. That's the power of those verses. To take that and apply it to the flesh, to take that and apply it to our own bodies is, is nothing short of cheapening and mangling and perverting the truth of Scripture. So that's how it started. He told a personal testimony of how he himself cast a demon out of a woman um, in Africa. So no, we don't have that authority. And by the way, and here, here I'm going to, before I get to the scriptures, just logically think about that. Because throughout his sermon, he said, um, Satan has some of our kids bound. There's strongholds here. There's, there's people that are bound here and everything. Okay, but then he told a testimony about how he set somebody free. He cast a demon out of somebody. Well, if that's the case, then why are you up there on the stage just talking? If you've already confirmed that there's people here that are bound by Satan, there's people here who are under strongholds and under oppression, and you have the power to cast out demons, then why are you wasting time up on the stage talking? Just go through the, stat, go through the crowd and start freeing people. There, their own actions disprove what they're teaching and what's coming out of their mouth. I have the power to cast out demons. I've got the power to do this, that, or the other. Then why are you wasting your time up there talking? Go through the crowd and set people free but you can't do it because you can't do it. It's not biblical. People say, oh, but what if he did actually cast out a demon? We'll get there. During that testimony, he said that God was speaking. The Holy Spirit told me, get up and go set that woman free. And I, I told God I was kind of scared. I didn't know if I could do it. The Holy Spirit told me a second time. So direct revelation from God. Is that how God communicates with us? No. Hebrews chapter one, God has spoken through his son. Then he shared a testimony. Um, he shared a testimony of healing, how they prayed over somebody and that person's throat cancer was healed, which by the way, for those of you who are thinking, oh, Caleb's a Baptist, he doesn't believe in healing. <laughs> God can heal anybody at any time as he sees fit. If we pray over people and we pray for their healing, yes, if it is God's will, God will heal that person and God will get the glory, right? 
So the issue with this isn't that he said we prayed over somebody and they got healed. The issue is shortly after that, he said, he, he went into this rant about how we, we have the keys of the kingdom and we have authority. That Jesus gave us the keys to the kingdom and we have the authority. That is something that's connected to what is called dominion theology or the seven mountain mandate. Um, and it's a highly heretical, false interpretation. And I, by the way, I don't, I don't throw the word heresy out there like just for fun. Uh, if you noticed, I haven't, I haven't just gone through this and said heresy, heresy, heresy. But dominion theology, seven mountain mandate theology and, and all of that stuff, saying that we have the authority. He even went as far as to say, Jesus left us here to fix the mess that we're in. Jesus left us here to fix the mess that we're in. That falls under the category of, okay, well, this is heretical because he's saying that we have the same power and we can do what Jesus did, which is literally what he said, because he also misquoted the verse where Jesus says, those who follow me, those who believe in me, they'll do even greater signs than these. Well, right there. What greater sign can anybody do than raising themselves from the dead? If that verse meant what people like Scott Camp and others think it to mean, where's the greater works? Have any of them brought themselves back from the dead? Have any of them ever raised anybody from the dead? Not themselves, but anybody else from the dead because Jesus did. So what are the greater works? What that verse means is Jesus had a very centralized, localized mission. And he told the apostles before he ascended, you will be my witnesses in Judea and all of Jerusalem and even to the ends of the earth. What is that? That's greater works than Jesus did. They took the gospel to Jew, to Jew and Gentile. They took the gospel to the ends of the earth. Greater works than even Jesus did. That's how that verse biblically is to be understood. So that's the problem. He brought up healing. He brought up the casting out of demons. And he, he used that to say, we have that same power. God has given us that authority. And so again, I ask the question, if God has given us that authority, then why was he up on that stage wasting our time talking? Why wasn't he just going through the crowd, healing people, setting people free, casting out demons, rebuking the demons? If he's got that power, why didn't he use it last night? Because it's not the truth. It's not the truth. He also prophesied over the schools. And on this point, here's what I want to say. Three years ago, or a little over three years ago, there were people in, in Baxley, people in Applin County, um, and they prophesied over Applin County that um, COVID had no authority. COVID had no authority in Baxley. Well, I'm not saying this to be irreverent. People continued to get sick. People continued to die. Biblically speaking, when somebody makes a prophecy or when somebody says that God has said this and that thing does not come to pass, in the Old Testament, they were to be stoned. But in the New Testament, I word it this way, and this is Caleb's wording. Scripture says have nothing to do with them, but knowing that in the Old Testament false, false teachers, false prophets were to be stoned, I would say that the way that we ought to handle such situations today is if people make a false prophecy, that it's obviously a false prophecy, those people should be to us as good as dead. Meaning that we never listen to anything else they say unless they repent and turn to Christ. But as long as they're continuing in their false prophecies and their false teachings, they need to be as good as dead to us because they've misrepresented God, 
They've slandered and blasphemed the name of God. And it needs to be addressed. So Scott Camp prophesied over the schools in Baxley and literally said, Satan, you have no authority. You have no power in the schools in Applin County. The middle school, the elementary school, the high school, we are taking authority back. We rebuke you. We take the authority back. We're stepping into the authority that Jesus has given us and we are taking control. He didn't say control. We are taking authority in these places. So just a, just a brief question there. If he prophesied in Jesus' name that Satan has no authority in these schools, then why do we need to go witness in these schools anymore? Why do we need to worry about anything? Authority has already been taken. Satan can't go to those schools anymore, y'all. We took the authority back from Satan. So all those children are safe and they're probably saved because if Satan has no authority there, if Satan has no power in those schools, y'all, that's holy ground. Do you see how foolish it is when you just when we just try to use discernment, biblical discernment. Think, well, now, wait a minute, wait, that sounds good. We prophesy in the name of Jesus. We rebuke every, every scheme and every stronghold. That, that sounds powerful, but when you really think about it, it's like, well, wait, if that really just happened, then we don't have to worry about anything because Satan was just rebuked and he has no authority in our schoolhouses anymore. So the only thing that can happen at our schoolhouses is are things that are righteous and things that are holy because we just took full authority so we don't have to worry about anything. You see how foolish that is? You see how crazy that is? You see how unbiblical and ungodly that is? You see how wicked that is to deceive people like that? You say, Caleb, you're being harsh. Give me just a couple more minutes. I'll get to the scripture where it plainly says that false teachers are loudmouth boasters and they're arrogant, and they revel in the daytime. What is this guy doing? I've seen over half a million people come to salvation or come to make a decision in Christ, boasting. I've seen this, and I've seen that, and I cast a demon out, and we're, we're, we're taking the authority back. We rebuke the demons. We rebuke the strongholds, and we rebuke this. Well, loud mouth boasters, arrogant, prideful. So we'll get to the scriptures there, and... Um, then he said, we, we have the keys to the kingdom, meaning that we have authority over these things. He said, we have the, kings of the, the keys of the kingdom. So with all of that being said, I want to start working through some scripture here because this is Christianity proper, proper doctrine, proper life. So those are all of my remarks. I'm going to work through some passages of scripture. If you have your Bible, I know it's late if you're watching, but if you're listening to the podcast and you have your Bible, Please take your Bible out and open up so you're reading these too. If you're going to stay up late and finish this video, please take your Bible out. Matthew chapter 24. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 24. I know I don't have all of these pre-marked in my Bible, so you'll have to give me just a moment to turn to these passages myself. Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 23. And this, of course, is the... Um, Jesus here is, is talking to uh, the disciples about the last days, the end of times. And in verse 23, he says, If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. 
for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray even if possible even the elect so there's a lot said there false teachers will have signs and wonders they will perform great signs and wonders so as to lead people astray what do these signs and wonders do they lead people astray these signs and wonders make people think oh we can trust these people they have the power of god when really they're being led astray so we go back to what if he really did cast out a demon what if he did really pray over somebody and their throat cancer was healed? What does that matter if he's preaching false doctrine? It doesn't. If he's preaching false doctrine, which he is, then he should be as good as dead. We should not listen to him. Unless or until he repents and turns from the false doctrine and the, the, uh, the false teachings and turns to Christ, when he opens his mouth, we shouldn't listen because he was preaching false doctrine. He was misleading people. If, if Jesus left us here to fix this mess we're in, then why is he coming back? He left us here to fix it. He doesn't need to come home, or come back, come home. He doesn't need to come back. We've got it. He left us here to fix it. So why is he coming back? Again, if you just, if you just take it the next step and think through it, you say, oh, well that, well, that doesn't make sense biblically. Because he's returning. So it's not up to us to fix it. It's, it's up to him. And if we have the power and the authority over all these strongholds, then why didn't the apostles use that method? Why didn't the people in the early church use that method? You know, these people died a martyr's death. These people, these people went through a lot of suffering. Why didn't they just rebuke the strongholds? Why didn't they just claim authority in Jesus' name that nobody could harm them, nobody could touch them, and no evil thing could come upon them? because that's not how it works. So that's Matthew 24, 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse uh, 3. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So, if anybody teaches a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of Jesus Christ and the teaching which accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So earlier when I said, if you say, Caleb, you're being a little harsh, listen to Paul's words here. If somebody is teaching something that doesn't line up with the word of God, if somebody is teaching something that doesn't line up with Jesus's own teachings, he doesn't understand anything and he's puffed up with conceit. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. Why do they do the things that they do? Because they think that godliness leads to great earthly gain. <clears throat> so um, I want to ask this question. The false teachers believe that godliness is a means of great gain. Is power and authority gain? Well, if you're godly, if you belong to Jesus, you have the power to cast out demons. You have the ability to rebuke strongholds and rebuke demons and, and do this, that, and the other. You have the power to heal. You have the power. Is that gain? 
If, if you belong to Jesus, God's going to bless your life. He's going to get, he's going to grant you success. He's going to allow you to do great things for it. Is that gain? False teachers. It's a misunderstanding that godliness is a means of worldly gain, power, authority, money, whatever. Godliness doesn't equate to gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment. God, I'm just going to trust you. I'm going to trust that what you have planned for my life is greater than anything that I could come up with. God, I'm going to trust your word that when it says rejoice even in trial and tribulation, that you meant that. Rejoice in suffering, that you meant that. I'm going to trust that that's what you meant by that, that there will be suffering, that all who desire to live a godly life will suffer, will be persecuted. That's in there. Paul told that to Timothy. Contentment is saying, God, what whatsoever you have sovereignly ordained for my life, I will accept that and I will rejoice. So the false teachers think the false teachers think that godliness is a means of great gain, but the truth is godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So that's Paul talking to Timothy about false teachers in 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3 verse 1. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, proud, arrogant, proud, arrogant, they will be lovers of money, lovers of self, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying the power thereof or denying its power. Avoid such people. Now, power is a word that gets thrown around a lot. A lot of people say, well, there's power. There's power to rebuke the devil, power to rebuke strongholds, and power to bind Satan. Power, power, power. What does true godly power look like? All of that list above that, you could say, well, that would be the opposite of godly, right? So people who live like this, they have an appearance of godliness, but they deny the power. So what does the power of God actually do? The power of God takes people who are lovers of self and makes them lovers of righteousness, lovers of Christ. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant. It humbles people, causes them to be compassionate, causes them to think about others more than they think about themselves. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. It takes people who are like that and makes them content in Christ. That's what true power looks like. Not our power, the power of God. The power of God unto salvation. Then he says, among them are those who creep into houses and capture weak women burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. There you go. They prey on the weak. Paul uses the picture of a weak woman here. They prey on the weak that are, that are burdened with sin and easily led astray. Burdened with sin. Do you feel guilty? 
Is there an area of your life that you're hiding from God or you think you're hiding from God? Is there an area of your life that you think you need to get right? Have you been telling everybody that you're saved, but deep down you know that you're, you, you don't have peace with God, you don't feel like you have peace with God? And they prey on that. They prey on people who are unsettled in their faith. They prey on people who are uneasy and they manipulate. That's the mark of a false teacher. Always learning, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Always learning, always learning. I want to connect that back to the rebuking demons and casting out devils and stuff like that. Always learning, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Any, any doctrine that we hold that forces us to say, we know something, we figured something out that not even the apostles figured out. What I mean by that is they're always learning, never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. If we develop and if we adopt a mindset that says, we figured out that we do have the authority to just go around casting out demons and rebuking things and, 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 and overcoming strongholds and stuff like that. And you know, it, do, it doesn't seem like the apostles did that in scripture. So we have, we have figured out a secret, a mystery that was hidden for years and we've rediscovered it. No, no, no. If you discovered something that not even the disciples knew about, you haven't discovered anything. You've just recreated a false teaching. If you've discovered anything, it's just another falsehood, another lie, another deception. Any mindset that we adopt that causes us to, it forces us into a place where we say, well, we do stuff that they didn't even do in scripture. That ought to be a huge red flag. And if we continue in that, that whether we like it or not, that makes us arrogant and proud and boastful to pretend like, yeah, we figured out some mysteries of the kingdom. We figured out some secrets to the kingdom that it doesn't even seem like the disciples were aware of. Okay? So 1 Peter 6, 2 Peter 3, or 1 Timothy 6, 2 Timothy 3. And in 2 Timothy 3, if you continue on, that's when he gets to the point. He, those are the false teachers. And so how is Timothy to fight back against these false teachers? What weapon does Timothy have at his disposal to fight back? Paul tells him, in verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Hold on to that phrase. Deceiving and being deceived. As for you, continue in what you have learned and you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. And then he says, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You've heard me say this a thousand times if you've ever listened to this podcast, even a couple of times. You've probably heard me say it multiple times already. If scripture is able to make us equipped for every good work, then we literally don't need anything else. God equips his people through the word. God equips his people through sound doctrine. And then Paul goes on to tell Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. That's what Timothy was supposed to do to fight this madness. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Again, if you think correction, if you think reproof, is a critical spirit, a pharisaical spirit, 
No, it's what we're supposed to do. There comes a time where we have to reprove and rebuke and exhort. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It is a myth that we have the power to cast out devils and to rebuke Satan and to bind the devil or to do anything like that. You say, oh, now wait, do you, believe that, do you believe that nobody can cast out a demon now? Yes. The, if somebody is demon possessed, yes, God still has the power to cast that demon out. Does that mean we have the authority to go up and say, in Jesus' name, come out? No, it's not how it works. And we'll get to that next. If you want to go ahead and turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to look at that specific concept. So yes, demons can still be cast out by the power of God. But that doesn't equal that we can just go around saying we have that power, that we can do it. That is a myth. It is a myth that we can just prophesy over an entire city that COVID has no authority here and Satan has no authority in our schools. That is a myth. We can't do that. Look at what happened with COVID. People continued to pass away. People continued to die. Even though there were multiple charismatic leaders in Baxley that were saying, we decree and we declare that, that COVID has no authority here. Well, look what happened. You're a false teacher. You're a false prophet. You need to repent. Anybody doing this, anybody doing this, anybody promoting these teachings need, needs to repent and turn away from the lies, turn away from the falsehood. So, 2 Peter chapter 2, I said that we would look at this exact concept of casting out demons. 2 Peter chapter 2, um, the second part of verse 10 is where we're starting. So 10b, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now here, Peter is talking about false teachers and he says that false teachers blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, although greater in might and power, they don't even pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So here's what he's saying. The glorious ones are like fallen angels, demons. The false teachers try to blaspheme the glorious ones like they don't have any power, like the glorious ones don't have any power. Now notice what he says. Angels who have greater might and greater power than we do, angels have greater might and greater power than we do, they don't even pronounce a blasphemous judgment. The angels don't even pronounce a blasphemous judgment on the glorious ones. But these foolish, arrogant, prideful, false teachers, they do pronounce a judgment. And they say, we rebuke you. Now, I'm, again, it, Peter doesn't say that's what these false teachers are saying, but think about that. False teachers try to rebuke the glorious ones and go against the glorious. What would that look like? In our modern context, I'll tell you what it looks like. We bind the devil. We rebuke Satan. We cast out every spirit in this house. We don't have the authority to do that. Not even the angels, not even the angels do that. But these, these false teachers, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters that they are ignorant. Sounds like what Paul said. If somebody, if somebody doesn't teach what accords with Christ, they don't understand anything. Peter says they're ignorant. They will be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. While they fellowship with you, 
They're only concerned about themselves. Their blots and blemishes reveling in their deception. While they feast with you, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. There it is again, a second time. Unsteady souls, weak souls, weak people, people who are suffering, people who are unsteady, people who are unsettled. They prey on those people. They have hearts trained in greed. They are accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. That's false teachers. Jude also references this. Jude also references this, the same exact thing. Um, in verse 8, Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, so false... This is about false teachers, people who, they rely on their dreams. Paul says in Colossians 2, don't let people who rely on visions and, and, and the worship of angels, don't let them deceive you. Don't let them pollute your thinking. So here in Jude, we have people who rely on their dreams. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, don't be, uh, don't be deluded by people who trust in their visions and trust in uh, visions of angels or things of that nature. They defile the flesh. They reject authority. They reject authority because clearly they think they have the authority. They reject authority and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Even when, when the archangel Michael contending with the devil was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a judgment, a blasphemous judgment, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they like unreasoning, unreasoning animals understand instinctively. Pair all this together, Matthew 24. False teachers will have signs and wonders. False teachers will try to blaspheme the glorious ones. False teachers will be proud, arrogant, boastful. They'll be all about themselves. They think that godliness is a means of gain. These are the false teachers. These are characteristics of false teachers. But they feast among us. They're among us. They're near us. They're around us. How do we identify them? What are they preaching? What are they preaching? Are they preaching the word? Or are they preaching for selfish gain? Are they preaching the word? Or are they preaching themselves? Are they preaching the word? Or are they preaching their own power? What are they preaching? Are they preaching Christ and Him crucified? Or are they preaching what you can get out of Christ? Are they preaching Christ and Him crucified or are they saying things like, what God did for me, He can do for you. What God has done in my life, He can do it in your life, which is a true, it's like a true thing, like a truism, but it's not the gospel. Last thing, and then I just have some questions that I'll, I'll end with the questions, so some food for thought, but another thing that gets tossed around a good bit is, is, is anybody who would criticize this or anybody who would criticize something like this is a Pharisee. They're just critical. They have a critical spirit. They have the spirit of a Pharisee. I want us to consider what a Pharisee really was. Now, Jesus said, basically, you, you, you know my word, you know the law, but your heart is far from me. So first and foremost, the Pharisees were not the Pharisees because they knew Scripture. I want to be very clear on that. Because nowadays, people who say, well, we need to look at the text, we need to look at Scripture, we need to study to show ourselves approved, 
immediately like, no, 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 just look at what happened. Don't go to the word of God. If you go, if you do that, don't criticize it. Don't analyze it. Just focus on what's happening. If you go to the text, you're a Pharisee. You have a religious spirit. The Pharisees were not the Pharisees because they cared about the word of God and they knew the word of God and they studied the word of God. That's not what made the Pharisees the Pharisees. What made the Pharisees the Pharisees was that their hearts were far from God. So we can ask ourselves the question, where was the heart of the Pharisees? The heart of the Pharisees was on themselves. They wanted the power. They wanted the esteem. We're the true children of God. We are the people of God. We have the power. We have the authority. It's all about us. We want an earthly kingdom. Hmm. Well, let's think about that for a moment. What did Scott Camp promise? What did he tell us we have? What do all these other false teachers who are into this dominion theology and, and ultra charismatic stuff, what, what are they really into? God gave us the power. God gave us the keys to the kingdom. We have the power. We have the authority. You can bind the devil. You can rebuke strongholds. You can cast stuff out. You can do this. You can do that. Power and authority. And anybody who tells you otherwise is not really of God. They're the Pharisee. They're the religious person. So, so let's break that down. We have the power. We're the real people of God. You need to listen to us. You need to follow what we're telling you because we're the ones that really have the power. We're the ones who actually have the power of God. We're the ones who can actually do stuff. We're the true people of God. And anybody who's against us, you don't need to listen to them because they just have a religious spirit. What sounds more like the Pharisees? What sounds more like the Pharisees? Hey, we need to go study and show ourselves approved. We need to test the spirits to see whether or not they are of God. Or don't do any of that. Just trust us. We have the power. If you want power, if you want the authority, listen to us. Follow what we're telling you. And anybody who disagrees with us, they're the enemy. They have a religious spirit. Which one sounds more like the Pharisees? To the extent that a lot of times when this when this gets brought up, oh, those people are religious, those people are Pharisees, there will be mocking. And what they're actually doing, they're mocking people who care deeply about the Word of God. God's people ought to care deeply about the Word of God. It's our only rule. Uh, it's our only infallible rule of faith and obedience. The Scriptures make us wise unto salvation and fully equip us for every good work. Should we be mocked that we care deeply about the things of God and we care deeply about His Word? Absolutely not. It's, in, it's insanity to think otherwise. Another thing, um, another thing that they use a lot is, we're not, we're not here to tell you about religion or tell you about church. We're here to tell you about Jesus. We're just here to tell you about Jesus. Well, that sounds great. They say it's all about Jesus. But then when they preach, everything we've talked about, I'm, I'm, I'm wrapping up. Everything they talk about, it's, is, again, is it about Christ or is it about other things? We're not here to tell you about religion. We're not here to tell you about the church. We're here to tell you about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And then in the sermon, it's testimonies. In the sermon, we're here to tell you about Jesus, but in the sermon, it's testimonies, personal challenges. Do you need to get right? Do you need to challenge yourself to be a soul winner? Do you need to get right with God? Do you need to make a decision? So it's testimonies, challenges, altar calls, 
decisions and sinners' prayers. So let's just ask this question. Did Jesus and the disciples go around just sharing testimonies about the awesome stuff that had happened in their ministry? No. Did Jesus just go around, come, or Jesus and the disciples, do we have it modeled for us in scripture that evangelism includes, at, do, you, do you want to go to hell? Do you know where you're going when you die? Do you need to make a decision for Christ? Do you need to do that? Is that event? No, we don't find that in scripture. Do we find modern day altar calls? Do we see people being called to a decision? Sure. Do we see Jesus saying, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden? Sure. Do we see the practice of altar calls and the madness that the altar calls have become? Absolutely not. You don't see altar calls. You see the gospel going out and you see faith in the sovereign hand of God, the sovereign work of God, the sovereign will of God to draw sons and daughters to salvation. All that the Father has given to the Son will come to him. Those who have been given to the Son before the foundation of the world when they hear the voice of their shepherd, when they hear that gospel call, they will respond in due time. At the appointed time, they will respond and they will be saved. Paul said that, Paul said that the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect so that they may obtain the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus and the disciples, the early church, they went around preaching Christ and him crucified. They, ran around, they went around preaching that Jesus is Lord. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Was it testimonies, personal challenges, emotional stories, uh, sad stories? Was it altar calls? Was it telling people, you need to make a decision for the Lord? Was it, say this prayer after me? No, that's not, you won't find any of that in scripture. So even though they're saying, it's not about religion, we're not here to give you the church, we're not here to give you religion. All of the methods that they use that aren't found in scripture, where did they learn it from? American religion. Americanized religion. It is empty, vain religion. So now I go all the way back to where we started. If 70% of the church, of the church is actually unregenerate, unconverted sinners, how in the world did they get into the church without being converted? Probably through these altar calls. Probably through these unbiblical methodologies that we've employed to get people saved, to get people to make a decision. That's the problem. Men, Christian men and women who use these methodologies of getting people to make a decision, getting people to repeat a prayer, getting people to raise their hand, getting people to come forward, that's the problem because we're not trusting in the power of the gospel. We're trusting in our game plans. We're trusting in our strategies. If 70% of the church is unconverted, how did, those, how did 70% unconverted people get into the church and think that they were Christian, probably because of our faulty evangelism. This is the problem. This type of evangelism, decisionism, raise your hand, say this prayer after me. You just made the greatest decision of your life. This is what leads to false converts. Why is there so many false converts in the church? What's the most popular method of evangelism that has existed? I'll say within the last hundred years of the church. What's the most popular form of evangelism in your lifetime? So we're not here to tell you about religion. We're not here to tell you about church. We're not here to give you anything but Jesus. It's all about Jesus. 
all about testimonies, all about personal challenges, all about emotional stories, all about the altar call. Where did they learn those methods? They did not learn them from scripture. They learned them from American religion. So the very thing that they say they're not selling, the very thing that they say that they're not doing is exactly what they are doing. They're not just telling people about Jesus. They're selling this Americanized, perverted version of the gospel and Christianity. So you know what that means? They're deceived and they're being deceived. They're deceived and they're being deceived. Because again, I believe that many of these folks are sincere. They're genuine. They want to see, they want to see God do something. But because they're deceived and they're employing these faulty, unbiblical methodologies... They're deceived and they're being deceived. I don't view these people and say, we need to cast them out of the kingdom. We need to get rid of them. Many of these are brothers and sisters in Christ and I want to see them be purified, be sanctified. And by the way, if any of you are watching this or listening to this and they say, well, Caleb, what about you? I think you've got some false teachings. I think you've got some false doctrine. Please reach out to me. If there's an area of my life or my teaching that I need to repent of, then let's repent together. Let's come together as the body of Christ and come to the word of God. And if we need to repent, let's repent. Let's get right with God, so to speak. Let's turn aside from error and cling to the truth, cling to Christ. So if you're watching this and you say, well, Caleb, I'd like to have a word with you. My number is 912-339-4211. I'm going to be out of, out of town for the next few days, but please shoot me a text, reach out to me. My email address is well, I'll give you this one, properministries at gmail.com because the other one's kind of hard to spell. Properministries at gmail.com. You can email me. You can call me. You can message me here on Facebook. If you say, Caleb, I need to talk to you because I think you need to repent, then let's get together, open Bibles, spirit of prayer. Let's seek the truth together. I'm not here to cast stones. I'm not here to cause division. I'm not here to, to, to smear the bride of Christ or anything like that. I'm here to plead with my brothers and sisters in Christ. If we have unbiblical practices, we all need to repent. I'm here to plead with us to think about what's really going on. Don't just look at the beautiful facade. Oh, there's a lot of people here. This is really exciting. There's a lot of people going forward. Look past that. What's being taught? What is being preached? What's the emphasis on? It's not on Christ. It is not on Christ. It's on the numbers. It's on the crusade. It's on the moment. I want to see the body of Christ purified and sanctified and edified. So is it biblical? What's the emphasis on? What, are you, what have you been focused on throughout this crusade? If you're, and what are people focused on when they go to the crusade? What's the focus on? What's the emphasis on? So is it biblical? What's the emphasis on what are people encouraged to think about? Where is people's hearts and their minds? Where are people's hearts and minds? Where is it, where is it focused? Are they, are they encouraged to be focused on themselves? Are they encouraged to be focused on Christ? Consider those questions. I'm going to hush now. Um, I wanted to do this tonight because we are going to be out of town. So um, I do have at least... One more podcast that I want to do pertaining Christian confusion, and then we'll move on for there. From there, um, thank you guys for listening. Um, if this has been helpful to you or encouraging to you, you know, if you think it's if you think it'll help somebody else, share it. But again, reach out to me anytime. 
My prayer is that God will be glorified in all things. My prayer is that the body of Christ would be purified and sanctified by the truth. Jesus himself prayed, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I want us to be united. I want there to be true joy. And I want God to be glorified. And sound doctrine, the teaching of the word, does and accomplishes all three of those things. May God be glorified and may God deal mercifully with us, his people. I love you guys. Hope to see you soon. Have a great evening.